So right now, <clears throat> let's have a let's have a word of prayer, and then we'll get into the message um, for today. So I invite you to bow your heads with me. Father in heaven, we do thank you so very very much for this holy Sabbath day. We thank you for uh, providing for all our needs um, and then some, and uh, we appreciate it so very very much. You have given us wonderful blessings. Um, and uh, we're so uh, unworthy of it, but we thank you, Lord, from from our hearts. And uh, we thank you especially for the spiritual blessings that you pour onto us, uh, that you gave us Jesus, uh, and uh, all heaven poured out in him so that we may be saved and, and have an opportunity to be a part of the family again. And so... Uh, we come before you on this Holy Sabbath day, a day that you made especially to be with us. We ask forgiveness for our sins and our our tendencies to do the wrong thing. We pray that you will give us of the Holy Spirit and help us to have better discernment and to have courage and strength to overcome these things and to rebuke the devil in Jesus' name. Uh, we pray, Lord, that, uh, that you will be with us in a mighty way as we get close to the end here, that we may share this truth with others. And please be with our family and loved ones, those who are ill, those who uh, are elderly. We pray for our mothers, and and we pray that you be very near to them. And uh, may we be a shining light to them that leads to uh, the holy city. Uh, please give me the words to speak today, and may our hearts be prepared to hear the truths that you have. Again, we thank you for Jesus. We ask these favors in his name. Amen. The last time I was with you, we talked about preparing for the Sunday Law Crisis. And there's so much that can be said about uh, such preparation that I want to continue with that theme uh, a bit with you at this time. So you could call this part two... You know, as it's Revelation 13 that uh, we'll be looking at uh, as uh, as the main point again. And so, friends, not only is the three angels' messages something we need to thoroughly understand, but Revelation 13 is a chapter we need to understand thoroughly as as well. I mean, for many reasons, of course. Uh, one of which being that uh, someday and maybe you've thought about this, uh, Jesus talked about it, um, but um, someday we're going to have to explain these verses in courts and in legislatures. You realize that? Uh, we, we must be able to explain what we believe and why we believe it, um, again, for many reasons, but because our witness will reach some soul Searching for truth, and that soul may just be saved by what we share. Now, <clears throat> as Adventists, you know, we've been called people of the book, right? <laughs> you know, as Adventists, we understand that Revelation 13, verses 1 to 10, talks about a beast that comes out of the sea. And as we look at these things, you know, and as I've studied this over the years, there are... 23 definitive descriptions, to my knowledge, of the beast power to help understand who it is and to know how they apply. That's quite a number, isn't it? And the only power in human history that fits these descriptions, my friends, is the Roman Catholic Church. There is no other power. There's no question. And so, there's, there's no denying this, really. I mean, there are people who deny it. The vast majority do. But they don't They don't understand the, the Word of God in, in history, do they? And so, you know, as Adventists, we also understand that Revelation 13, uh, verses 11 to 17, talks about another beast that comes up later, after that first beast. There are, as I found, and there may be more, uh, 17 definitive statements that describes this beast and we know this beast to be the United States and again 
It's it's undeniable. If you look at all these descriptions, it's undeniable that it is uh, our country here. You know, these truths, they're, they're solid. They're undeniable because they can be found in God's Word and, and attested to by recorded history. These are prophecies, friends. They were shared with God's holy prophets to give to us. Have you ever thought about that? And they're not the imaginations of men. You know, I hear quite a lot, you know, well, that's, you know, a myth, or that's a bunch of guys got together and wrote these stories up. I mean, what an ignorant statement that is. Or you can, it takes more faith to believe some idiot statement like that than to show that it's all true. It's incredible to me. Oh, it's just a myth made up by men over hundreds of years, yet all of it is in line, one book with another. You know the odds of that? If it was all made up, it's incredible. But it's not the imaginations of men. It's not something made up by Pastor Joel or any other man. So, we need to study these things out correctly and pray that the Lord will help us to be ready for what's going to happen because it's going to happen suddenly. And it's going to happen at, uh, for most of us, the vast majority, it's going to happen at an unexpected time. And, uh, and it's going to happen sooner rather than later. And I want to be as ready as possible. What about you? You want to be as ready as possible? <clears throat> I want to go to Revelation chapter 13. And again, this is the, the basis and the theme of our study here. Revelation 13, I'm going to read verses 15 to 17. And he had power to give life unto the image of the beast that the image of the beast should both speak and cause, that's legislate and enforce, friends, speak and cause that as many as would not worship the image of the beast should be killed. That should get everybody's attention. When you read that, you're like, whoa. And the word in there is worship. So, it has to do with religion, doesn't it? Verse 16, And he causeth all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and bond, to receive a mark in their right hand or in their foreheads. So this beast power, this government, our government here in the United States, is going to cause everybody to receive that mark. Verse 17, And that no man might buy or sell, save he that had the mark, or the name of the beast, or the number of his name. And, of course, this will lead up to the death decree, which we read in verse 15. Now, now when you think about this, uh, buying and selling, not being allowed to buy and sell, those who were alive in the 1940s during World War II... I think they experienced kind of a foretaste of what will be ex experienced here in the near future when there are restrictions on, on buying and selling. Uh, my parents saw similar restrictions enforced by this country in the 40s with the rationing system. Now, they were very young. They were, you know, um, 1941, Dad would have been 10 years old, and and so, uh, mom, nine years old, and they, they came up, they got a taste of that. You couldn't buy gasoline, oil, tires, shoes, sugar, meat, coffee, a host of other products without ration stamps from the federal government. You also couldn't sell. Many people don't understand this. You couldn't sell without permission from the government. And, and the government fixed prices for both buyers and sellers. And there were very stiff penalties for violators that included fines and even jail time. Um, and that, and what did that <clears throat> what did that encourage, you know? Because you always have a criminal element involved, don't you? But that encouraged 
of the black market. And, of course, the black market flourished, just as it did, remember, during the Prohibition when they they made alcohol, um, for the most part, illegal. But today we're living in a completely different age, aren't we? And we've been told by God through his prophet that we need to prepare for that time when we cannot buy or sell. From Selected Messages, Book 2, page 142, Ellen White wrote, and she wrote this in 1903. She said, The work of the people of God is to prepare for the da- uh, excuse me, prepare for the events of the future which will soon come upon them with blinding force. This is where I get the title of this this message. With blinding force. In fact, it's the only time, this statement right here, is the only time Ellen White uses this description. With blinding force. I found that very interesting. And if you look up in the dictionary, and you look up blinding, and you look up a definition for that, and you look up the def- definition of force, you I think you'd be rather surprised how many definitions there are uh, for the word blinding. And even, well, force not so much, you know. Um, but I think what she means here in this reference with blinding force is a dazzling violence. So she says the work of the people of God is to prepare for the events of the future which will soon come upon them with dazzling violence. I think it fits. And as we have learned in all our studies of, you know, Revelation 13, Revelation 14, very soon, with dazzling violence, with blinding force, she says, there's going to be a national Sunday law. And with that law will come the restrictions of the mark and then eventually a death decree for all who refuse it. From Testimonies to Ministers and Gospel Workers, page 31. Prophet also said that we have nothing to fear for the future, and many of you have probably heard this before and read it before. We have nothing to fear for the future except as we forget the way of the Lord, excuse me, we forget the way the Lord has led us and his teaching in our past history. The problem is, in my experience that I've seen, is that most Adventists today hardly even know what happened in the past. So how would they forget something they never knew? I'm going to share history with you today, so don't fall asleep on me. Don't have your eyes glaze over. I think uh, I think this will pique your interest. Um, I don't think we'll have a problem with that today. If you if you know anything about this subject, you'll know that in the past there have been efforts to develop and enact a national Sunday law in the United States, but they have never succeeded to this point. One of the reasons that the effort failed, for example, in 1891 with the Blair Amendment, Senator Blair come up with an amendment to have a make Sunday a worship day, no work. Uh, and one of the reasons that that effort failed was that A.T. Jones, who was an Adventist minister, he was also a professor of history, he went to the United States Congress and he explained to them the consequences of doing such a thing and, and and so the law wasn't passed. I think if you go back and look, it was defeated by one vote. If I'm not mistaken. It was defeated by one vote. That's how close we came in this country. However, even though our nation has never passed the National Sunday Law, the states themselves have passed many state Sunday laws. These are often called blue laws, aren't they? you heard that expression before, it's a blue law. And every state has them. It's all just setting up towards that end game, you see, of a national Sunday law. But uh, I want to review a bit with you what has happened in the past with Sunday laws, uh, the state Sunday laws in this country. Now, this is not an extensive or exhaustive account by any means. And I encourage you to get Um, familiar with the history of these things. Do some of your own research into this. 
You know, um, Google is your friend right now <laughs> as far as doing research. So if you have access to the Internet, you know, type, type some of these things in. Do a little research. Um, events that occurred in the late 1880s, for example, in Tennessee, uh, were recorded in the Allen White uh, 1888 materials. You can go... Uh, to that, pages, she talks about it, she references it anyway, pages 471 to 497. Uh, in, in those pages, actually, she's talking to the, the General Conference of, about what they should do and not do about these things. And so it was in regard to what happened in Tennessee that Ellen White wrote, she wrote a very lengthy testimony about how we should relate to Sunday laws. A number of those statements are being pulled out of context today for uh, conference churches to to have meetings on Sunday, worship services on Sunday. That's where they get some of those writings from, from what the, this instance in Tennessee and what Ellen White was counseling the conference to do and not to do. See? And this is important for Seventh-day Adventists to know. So that when these laws are pushed again, we, we don't take extremes either way in how we react, you see. Now, there are several places you can read about these things. Um, and I'm going to read an excerpt, a rather long excerpt here. Uh, I want to share some excerpts from the book entitled Dateline Sunday USA. Uh, it was written by Warren L. Johns, and he authored this in 1967. Now, Warren Johns, uh, if I'm not mistaken... Um, he graduated from La Sierra, I think it is, uh, and he went to law school, and he was an attorney, and he did um, research on this subject, and he came out with, with this, this book. And, uh, um, in fact, I, I ordered this particular book. Uh, because there's a lot of uh, good stuff in this, but you can get it uh, if you punch in his name uh, on the internet. You know, do a search for him. His name again is Warren L. Johns, J-O-H-N-S, and and it'll probably pop up. and And I know there are some links on the internet where you can actually read it. And so, uh, if you can't find that, you know, send me an email and I'll send you the link. Anyway, <clears throat> I'm going to be reading from from this book that he he had written, and uh, he again he wrote it in 1967, so that's what 40, you know, uh, nine years ago. So, uh, listen to what he had to say at that time. He says, in the 19th century, Sunday laws served as an active instrument of religious intolerance in more than one state. Organized as a church in 1863, Seventh-day Adventists were committed to the doctrine of Sabbath observance from sundown Friday evening to sundown Saturday evening as a memorial of creation. And, of course, that's the fourth commandment, isn't it? Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Right? He says they were also committed to civil obedience, respect for government, and love of country. Their leaders counseled them honestly to endeavor to obey Sunday laws, however unjust. Okay? And that's true. And that reference I gave you from uh, um, the 1888 materials, she kind of covers that. See? He goes on, he says, Still there were some who misjudged the zeal of their spies and critics. And then he starts to give examples here. He says at Shadyside, Maryland, a watchman's association was formed for the avowed purpose of spying on the Sunday conduct of Seventh-day observers in hopes of ferreting out illegal actions and sending them to jail or driving them from the country. The door and transom of their meeting house at this place were broken and their worship was disturbed. This was their sole purpose, this Watchman's Association. 
And he gives some, some examples. He says a Mr. Howard was arrested for taking two or three minutes to pick up some sticks in a churchyard Sunday morning before breakfast. A Mr. Bullen ran afoul of the law for inspecting his garden for five minutes one Sunday. This happened at a time when axes were to be heard all around the neighborhood. Even their informants were caring for their boats, bailing out water, drying sails, etc., preparing to amuse themselves on the same, quote, Lord's Day, commonly called Sunday. He says a Mr. Ford of Queens Anne County, Maryland, swore he would prosecute the first Seventh-day Adventist he could find at work on Sunday. Consequently, and this is sad but a little humorous, <laughs> consequently he was instrumental in the arrest of his own brother on June 5, 1893. The crime was the act of hauling some window sashes for the new Seventh-day Adventist church from the steamer dock on Sunday to prevent their being destroyed, threats to that effect having been made. So the only reason this particular, sounds as if, the only reason this particular man, this Mr. Ford, was uh, moving these sashes was because there were threats that on a Sunday they would be destroyed. And that sounds a little bit like entrapment. He says Samuel Mitchell, a Seventh Adventist of Quitman, Brooks County, Georgia, was sentenced to 30 days in jail in 1878 for plowing his own field. Although in poor health, he served the sentence rather than pay the fine. You don't think that uh, there's prejudice against our faith, friends? This is just a little taste of what we're going to get hit with, with blinding force, with dazzling violence. Listen to this. He says in 1889, <clears throat> this was two years before the Blair Amendment for a national Sunday law. In 1889, Day Conklin of Big Creek, Forsyth County, Georgia, was found guilty of chopping wood on Sunday. The Friday before, much of his family's possessions had been soaked in a cloudburst while moving. The weather turned bitter cold, and with his meager supply of firewood exhausted by Sunday, Conklin acted to preserve the health of his family. Fine and court costs totaled $83. Eradicating all doubt as to the motive behind Conklin's conviction, one of the witnesses against him, and one of the jurors giving the verdict chopped wood at their own homes on the very next Sunday after the trial, apparently immune to any threat of prosecution. But Conklin was a Seventh-day Adventist. Seventh-day observers were charged with a wide variety of Sunday law violations. In Arkansas, J.W. Scholes, a clergyman, was seen painting the back of a church out of sight of all public roads. He was arrested for breaking the, quote, Sabbath, the Sunday law. And that, of course, these are state laws, see. James A. Armstrong dug potatoes in his field. William L. Gentry plowed on his farm. Fourteen-year-old John A. Meeks hunted squirrels. J. L. James did carpenter work as an act of charity. He worked in the rain to repair a house for a widow about to be evicted from her home. The widow was a Methodist. The informer was a minister of the Missionary Baptist Church who had a habit of chopping wood for his own use on Sunday. J.L. Shockley cleared land and hauled rails. Joe McCoy plowed his field. John Noosh picked some overripe peaches which threatened to spoil on the trees. In 1887, this is pretty interesting, In 1887, Arkansas State Senator R.W. Crockett, grandson of the legendary Davy Crockett, made an impassioned plea to his cohorts to restore an exemption for Seventh-day observers which would offer some relief from Sunday law enforcement. I've I've grown attached to Davy Crockett and his offspring, offspring because of this. 
The exception was restored after Crockett's dramatic plea, which cited the hardship case of a Mr. Swearingen. You realize he act, he behaved just like his grandfather did when his grandfather was when the was in a, a member of the U.S. Congress from Tennessee. They were trying to pass some Indian uh, uh, bill that would, uh, you know, um, persecute Indians, and and Davy Crockett got up and he railed into him, just railed into him. And it wound up going down into defeat. Um, and then, of course, later he, he resigned from Congress then. and uh, But but here's what this... Uh, I'll read to you what this Senator uh, R.W. Crockett, the grandson of Davy, said. He said... <coughs> he said he was a member... Um, and, and again, he's speaking of this hardship case of a Mr. Swearingen. He was a member of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, and after having sacred, sacredly observed the Sabbath of his people, Saturday, by abstaining from all secular work, he and his son, a lad of 17, on the first day of the week went quietly about their usual avocations. They disturbed no one, interfered with the rites of no one. But they were observed and reported to the grand jury, indicted, arrested, tried, convicted, fined, and having no money to pay the fine, these moral Christian citizens of Arkansas were dragged to the county jail and imprisoned like felons for 25 days, and for what? For daring in this so-called land of liberty in the year of our Lord, 1887, to worship God. Was this the end of the story? Alas, no, sir. They were turned out, and the old man's only horse, his sole reliance to make bread for his children, was levied on to pay the fine and costs, amounting to $38. The horse sold at auction for $27. A few days afterward, the sheriff came again and demanded $36. $11 balance on the original, you know, due on the fine, and costs. And $25 for board for himself and son while in jail. And when the poor old man, a Christian, mind you, told him with tears that he had no money, he promptly levied on his only cow but was persuaded to accept bond, and the amount was paid by contributions from his friends of the same faith. Sir, my heart swells to bursting with indignation as I repeat to you the infamous story. End quote. That was the plea from Davy Crockett's grandson there in Arkansas. Um, <clears throat> uh, um, Senate. I'm trying to think if he was in the, you know, representative or senator. He was a senator in the Arkansas Senate, and of course they, they gave an exemption then to Seventh Day Adventists. Um, Tennessee. We'll go on here. Tennessee also had uh, an unfortunate number of prosecutions, which offered evidence suggesting that the law was being arbitrarily exercised against. A religious minority. Now think about that. It was being arbitrarily exercised against a religious minority. And it was. The people who (laughs) supposedly hold to Sunday as the Lord's Day were doing all this kind of work on their, quote, Sabbath. But he goes on, he says, It was in Tennessee that convicted Sunday law violators were reserved a place in line on the chain gang. And I have a copy of a picture of this actual chain gang. And in fact, if you, I put it on the bulletin. If you can uh, see today's bulletin, um, you see a picture on the cover of the bulletin. Uh, there were 12 men in this chain gang, nine of which were Seventh-day Adventists. And in that picture, the three that are in the very front, they weren't Seventh-day Adventists. So the nine that were in the back and on the wagon and such, uh, they were Seventh-day Adventists. Um, He says four Seventh-day Adventists were tried May 27, 1892 at Paris, Tennessee, on charges ranging from chopping and hauling firewood to plowing in a strawberry field. 
After being fined $25 apiece, three of the defendants were marched through the streets of Paris. That's Paris, um, again, uh, in Tennessee, not France. (laughs) The streets of Paris in the chain gang and forced to perform street labor. W.B. Capps served 97 days in jail for performing ordinary farm labor in Dresden, Tennessee. Then there was the case (coughs) of R.M. King, a Tennessee farmer charged with cultivating his corn on a Sunday in June 1889. Members of his community had urged King to forsake his beliefs and conform to the Sunday-keeping traditions of his neighbors. They suggested that he either change his ways move away, or face prosecution. It was no idle threat. Citizens signed a pledge late in 1888 to prosecute all observed Sunday violations. Hunting, fishing, ordinary farm labor, and urgent business were common Sunday practices in the neighborhood. So they still, though these people professed to keep Sunday holy, they still hunted, fished, did farm labor, urgent business, on Sunday. But the vigilantes, he says here, had eyes only for the seventh day observers. Obion County Justice J.A. Barker found King guilty on July 6, 1889. The fine and costs totaled $12.85, which King had to forfeit. <clears throat> Next came a grand jury indictment for virtually the same offense for which he had been fined by Barker. He was charged with plowing on Sunday and doing various other kinds of work on that day and on Sundays before that day without regard to said Sabbath days. <coughs> Excuse me. Judge Swigert, <laughs> wonder if uh, Jimmy's a descendant of this guy. Judge Swigert and a jury heard the matter in Troy, Tennessee on March 6, 1890. The defense was not allowed to introduce evidence of the previous conviction for the same offense. They tried him again, friends, for the same thing he'd already been tried for. Within a half hour, the jury was back with a guilty verdict. This time, the fine was $75. The judge refused a new trial and warned that Mr. King and all other men should and must obey the laws of Tennessee or leave the country. (coughs) King appealed why wouldn't you? I mean, <laughs> you don't have the money. But he appealed. Colonel T.E. Richardson represented the appellant and submitted a brief to the state Supreme Court. But the trial verdict was sustained in 1891. Don M. Dickinson, Postmaster General in 1888-89, joined with Richardson in representing King's case on appeal before the United States Circuit Court for the Western District of Tennessee. In an August 1, 1891 decision, Federal Judge Hammond acknowledged that, quote, by a sort of factitious advantage, the observers of Sunday have secured the aid of the civil law and adhere to that advantage with great tenacity, and in spite of the clamor for religious freedom and the progress that has been made in the absolute separation of church and state, and in spite of the strong and merciless attack that has always been ready, in the field of controversial theology, to be made, as it has been made here, upon the claim for divine authority for the change from the seventh to the first day of the week, they cling to their advantage. So they're not interested, friends. Is the devil ever interested in fairness? Equality? Liberty? Please. He says, but the federal court refused to reverse the decision because, in the court's words, quote, the proper appeal is to the legislature, for the courts cannot change that which has been done, however done, by the civil law in favor of the Sunday observers. What a cop-out. Oh, we don't have the authority. What do we see today? They say they do have the authority. Don't you, haven't you noticed over the last several years how the Supreme Court, as an example, the United States Supreme Court just picks and chooses what they want to do, you know, what they want to rule on, and then they don't even rule according to the Constitution of the United States. It's all political. 
And that's what you have here. It's political. Warrens goes on in his book. He says, The decisions reflected an era pockmarked with widespread religious agitation on the issue. During the years 1895 and 1896 alone, no less than 76 Seventh-day Adventists were prosecuted in the United States and Canada under existing Sunday laws. Of these, 28 served terms of various lengths in jail, chain gangs, etc., aggregating 1,144 days. Not always, I'll end with this, he says not always did the Sunday law violators lose their cases. The Sullivan-Wareham family moved from Montana to Greenville, South Carolina to farm. Worshippers on the seventh day, they were seen picking strawberries on Sunday, May 2nd, 1909. And with others of like belief, charged with disrupting, quote, the peace and dignity of the state of South Carolina. Really. Picking Picking strawberries. They were disrupting the peace and dignity of the state of South Carolina. This time, a friendly jury took only 30 minutes to return a not guilty verdict. Isn't that incredible? And this is all in that book you're talking about. Have have you ever... um, Have you ever read such things? Have you ever heard of such things? Most people in Adventism haven't. I knew... I was familiar with the Tennessee... The one Tennessee case... Um, but uh, it's just incredible. These were accounts in the 1800s. And, and, and it was during these times that there was a hard push for the Sunday Law. Um, and in fact, like I mentioned before, in 1891, Sunday keepers thought they could get the law passed. Um, and uh, Senator Blair, he had his amendment. And in fact, I, friends, I'm telling you, it would have passed uh, if A.T. Jones had not protested it in Congress. Yeah, which resulted in, of course, the majority of the United States Congress voted him down. And like I said, again, I think it, it failed by one vote. <laughs> it was that close. Um, in 1920, in Virginia, on Tangier Island in Chesapeake Bay, this is just disturbing to me. Um, because, you know, what what is the what is the basis of our study today? We, we, we started with Revelation 13, didn't we? And it talks about... Uh, this beast is is going to push the image, uh, and and going to have worship a worship law. And what's the final consequence if you don't go along with this law? There's going to be a death decree, isn't there? Well, in 1920, here, you know, Tangier Island, Chesapeake Bay, a young man by the name of Roland Parks. Well, let me say it again. It's probably Roland. There's one L. So. Uh, Roland Parks was shot with a revolver by the local constable because he refused to go to church on Sunday morning or to remain indoors. You know what he was doing? He wasn't even working. He was sitting outside on a bench in front of the town store in violation of their local Sunday law. That's all he was doing. And the constable shot him. Not sure if he killed him or not, but he shot him. So let me tell you something here, friends. What has happened in the past on a state level is going to happen in the future on the national level. And friends, you can believe that because God has told us that. Right? Right? Ellen White wrote about this National Sunday Law and Testimonies, Volume 5, page 451, and and, and she lists a whole series of things that are going to happen when it's passed. She says it will be be the time when the the, the marvelous uh, um, working of Satan will come to pass. She says our people are going to be plunged into those scenes of distress and affliction uh, described in the prophecies, and that national apostasy will bring about national ruin. You remember reading things like that? And I brought that up before to you. Um, and friends, when that happens, we can know that it's almost time for the angel of mercy to take flight never to return. 
What does that mean? That means the probation closes. That's what that means. You know, and she said these things would come upon us with blinding force. So we need to be studying and asking the Lord to teach us step by step what to do and when to do it. Right, friends? Now the time will come when we have to flee to the mountains and desolate places. We know that, but is is now the time for that? And only the Lord knows where each one of us will be when Jesus comes. You know, we've read some things and such. Some will be in prison or in a cave. But be sure that life will not be the same as we are experiencing at this present time. It's not. I mean, I just shared with you some history about state Sunday laws and you've seen the prejudice, (laughs) you know, in those acts. Adventists believe and have taught that because of what's coming on the world, we must get out of the cities, especially the big cities. Preparation must be made for these difficult times that are ahead of us, friends. And they're right at the door. They're right at the door. In 1902, you find this from Manuscript Releases, Volume 17, page 357. Ellen White wrote this in 1902. She said, The time is not far distant when every city will be visited by the plagues of God. Every city. That should give us kind of a heads up, don't you think? Manuscript releases volume 19, page 337. She said this, The larger the city, the greater will be the oppression. Kind of got a theme going on here, don't we? Although the pen of inspiration states that the United States will lead out in this oppression, the very same crisis regarding buying and selling, it's eventually going to be a worldwide event, isn't it? But it starts here in the United States with that second beast of Revelation 13. God's people will be affected at the time, regardless of where they are when this happens. And like she said, every city will be visited by the plagues of God. Now, there are already plagues of God in the earth, aren't there? But when I read these things, and I read that that she says that in the last days, God is going to walk through the earth and spoil the whole land, I kind of ask myself, what does that mean? What does that mean? Well, friends, we're about to find out, aren't we? It's not going to be good. You can count on that. Again, from Manuscript Releases, Volume 17, this time, page 350. Those who choose to remain in the cities, surrounded by the houses of unbelievers, must share in the disasters that will come upon them. Wow. That's an incredible statement. If you choose to remain in the cities, what is our counsel? What what is the, the... the spirit of prophecy that has been shared with God's people say about living in the cities in this time of earth's history? We are to move into rural areas, aren't we? And be preparing for what's coming. Learn to be more self-sustaining. Because when you can't buy or sell, what are you going to eat? Deb uh, shared with me a, uh, a link about uh, Venezuela. Venezuela is a, a socialist country, uh, and, and, and uh, they're run, they've run out of food. These people, in, in, because the government, being socialist, has put so many laws on the people that they can't be self-sustaining, they can't grow their own food, they can't do such things. Now they don't have any food. It reminded me of, you know, when I grew up, we had the Soviet Union and uh, the communist, you know, bloc. And and they had lines, they had bread lines, they had lines for toilet paper, they had lines for everything. 
and they would run out, and that, you're just out of luck. See, that's what it reminded me of. Socialism has never worked throughout all the history of man. There's not one place you can point to that proves that socialism works or communism, either one of them. It's all about control and power, friends. That's all it is. So, here they, you know, Venezuela, they have a lot of these huge cities in Venezuela, and they're all out of food in that country. We see some of the things that are coming. And and to see these things as God professed people, and, and to know what... The, the prophet has told us that we need to be preparing, we need to leave the cities and move out to smaller towns and out into the country. If you choose to remain in the city, what else can you expect? As she says, those who choose to remain in the cities, surrounded by the houses of unbelievers, must share in the disasters that will come upon them. And so we've been told before it happens so that we can think through where we live and what we're doing now and consider how we'll be affected by what's going to happen. Now, here is what the Lord, who knows everything, of course, has has told us. He knows what the devil's thinking and all of his devious plans, and so he's revealed them through his prophets so we have a head start. Would you agree with that? And so we need to heed his warnings as they're given in mercy, friends. God gives us these things because he loves us. He doesn't want us to suffer through these things. Now I want you to notice what Satan says. And this this is reported through God's end time prophet. Now bear in mind, this is what Satan is saying. This first one's from the book Prophets and Kings, page 183. Satan says, For fear of wanting food and clothing, they will join with the world in transgressing God's law. The earth will be holy under my dominion. Why why do they transgress God's law? He says, For fear of of want of food and clothing. Now why would they have that fear? Because they'll not be able to buy and sell, you see, unless they compromise their faith. And then in Maranatha, page 163, he continues, now notice this, if you go back to that statement, he says the earth will be holy under my dominion. So what's he going to use? He uses fear, doesn't he? The fear of want of food and clothing. You're going to starve to death or you're going to be under the, you know, the elements. But here, Maranatha, page 163, is Satan. He says, Then the Sabbath, of course he's speaking of Sunday, the false Sabbath, He says, then the Sabbath which I have set up shall be enforced by laws the most severe and exacting. Those who disregard them, that's these severe and exacting laws, shall be driven out from the cities and villages and made to suffer hunger and privation. That time's coming, friends. We don't know when or how exactly, but it is at the door. How are you preparing for that? How are you preparing? Are you studying more of God's Word so that you can pass along the truths to others, so you can pass this test, keeping the Sabbath? Are you praying more for the help of God and for direction? Are you acting upon your faith, those things that you already know to be true? You know, when I studied these subjects many years ago as a young Christian, I thought at that time, like many Adventists, that we needed to find an isolated place as soon as possible. I remember, I, you know, I, I, I remember buying a tent that had an opening for a flue so that we could have heat when we were out in the wilderness. 
Now, admittedly, I was very young. And I was inexperienced, um, you know. And upon further study into this this particular subject, it was revealed that there is a time to do that. There is a time to get out. But right now, we need to get the message to the world. See, we've been told we should scorn concealment. That's what the Jews did. You see, we're not to live unto ourselves like we're hermits. We have our marching orders, friends. But the time to flee is coming. And we have to trust the Lord that He will show us at the right time when we're to head out. And so we need to go to the Lord and ask for the Holy Spirit to guide us and to direct us And I truly believe that the Lord will leave no one behind. You know, it's almost like we have this fear of doing things for the Lord as if, you know, He's going to forget us at the first sign of trouble, you know. I believe that He's not going to leave anybody behind that follows Him. He's not going to forget any one of His own people. And I say you can trust Him on that. So I says in Hebrews 13, verses 5 and 6, Let your conversation be without covetousness, and be content with such things as ye have. For he hath said, I will never leave thee. Do you believe that? He says, I will never leave thee, nor forsake thee. So that we may boldly say, The Lord is my helper, and I will not fear what man shall do unto me. That's an incredible promise for us, friends. Go back to the book Maranatha, page 270. Ellen White saw in vision the time of trouble. Notice what she says here. She says, During the night, a very impressive scene passed before me. There seemed to be great confusion and the conflict of armies. Now, I'm going to share this with you because it should be an encouragement to you. This goes along with what I'm saying. God is not going to leave you behind. If you trust and have faith in Him. So here she is. During the night, a very impressive scene passed before me. There seemed to be a great confusion and a conflict of armies. A messenger from the Lord stood before me and said, Call your household. I will lead you. Follow me. He led me down a dark passage through a forest, then through the clefts of mountains and said, Here you are safe. There were others who had been led to this retreat. The heavenly messenger said, The time of trouble has come as a thief in the night. As the Lord warned you, it would come. So friends, the the Lord knows when we will be driven from our homes. And if we are staying close to Jesus, He can send an angel to tell us ahead of time that it's time to get ready to go. You see, there's no way you can surprise the Lord, is there? If you're under His direction, the Lord can direct you when it's time to leave your home and when it's time to flee to the mountains or a similar place of safety. Uh, Maranatha, page 205. Ellen White says, It is impossible to give any idea of the experience of the people of God who shall be alive upon the earth when celestial glory and a repetition of the persecutions of the past are blended. And then she says, She says, by means of the angels, there will be constant communication between heaven and earth. And that's for God's people. That should be an encouragement for us, friends. When these prophecies in Revelation 13 are fulfilled, the most important preparation is, you know what it is? You know, sometimes we get consumed with, what does the Lord want me to do? Do I need to find a place out in the country? Do I need to... But what, what is the most important thing the most important preparation for us. That's to have the Holy Spirit in our hearts. That's the most important thing. That's the greatest preparation. Are you being directed and guided by, you know, those heavenly agencies? How else can we receive communication from heaven if we don't listen to the Holy Spirit and have Him in our hearts. 
Is the Holy Spirit directing your path right now? What tangible preparations are you making for the conflict that is right before us? Is he, is he, are you heeding His direction? What do we do? What did Jesus tell us to do? Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 and 8. He said, ask and it shall be what? Given you. He's not saying you need to beg me for answers. It's above your pay grade. He doesn't say that. He says, ask and it shall be given you. Seek and you shall find. Knock and it shall be opened unto you. For everyone that asketh receiveth. And he that seeketh findeth and to him that knocketh it shall be opened. I think sometimes as the people of God we're too afraid to ask. God's promise is He's going to give an answer. We need to step out in faith, friends, and ask. I shared this a little bit earlier. It was in part of it is in the bulletin. Early writings, pages 56, 57. She says, I was shown that it is the will of God that the saints should cut loose from every encumbrance before the time of trouble comes and make a covenant with God through sacrifice. If they have their property on the altar and earnestly inquire of God for duty, He will teach them when to dispose of these things. Then they will be free in the time of trouble and have no clogs to weigh them down. as we draw closer to the end these things are going to come on us with blinding force friends but nothing comes on the Lord with blinding force you know that there's no such thing as surprising the Lord that's the most important thing is for each one of us to be guided by those heavenly agencies and to be in tune with the Lord and not just going you know, our own way And for that to happen, we need churches. We have to have churches. God's work is to be organized, isn't it? We need the people of God's church to be praying day by day that we might be led and guided by the Holy Spirit. And so we know that our work right now is to get the three angels' messages to all the world and to help people to get ready in character for Jesus to come. But the time will come when it will be time to do something different. Jesus said, we don't know when the time is. But he does know. He knows it. And it's not going to be a surprise when normality as we know it breaks apart. He shared the truth with us of what's coming. So we need to be a people of prayer, don't we? We need to be continually in prayer, an atmosphere of prayer, speaking to God and, and asking for direction. And if our lives are committed to the Lord and we're seeking for the Holy Spirit to direct and guide us, the angels know exactly what we need to do and they're going to lead us. We have that promise. We've been promised His Holy Spirit so that we can face the future without having terror. You see, friends, the devil wants to terrorize us. He wants us to fear. There are many people who are fearful and cannot figure out what's happening in this world. you know that? I mean, the economy is, is collapsing. There is moral decline. These people don't feel safe anymore. Some worldly people are moving out to the mountains for safety, you know, believing that a terrible catastrophe is going to happen in the United States. I mean, you see it on the internet all the time. You got all these prepper um, sites, and they teach some good survival uh, skills and things like that. But why are they out there? They believe that there's there's going to be a civil war. I kind of tend towards that. I believe there may be civil war. I mean, it's not going to be pretty, is it? There are some worldly people, they're hoarding gold and, and silver, and they're stashing food and water in preparation for their survival. <laughs> However, the most important thing for us, friends, is to be guided by the Holy Spirit. And I want to share with you, as we, we close up here, the Lord has made us this promise in Luke 11 and verse 13. He said, 
If ye then, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask Him? He has promised to send you the Holy Spirit if you ask in faith. And when the Holy Spirit comes, the next thing is, am I going to receive whatever rebuke or reproof or or, or direction that He gives me? And if I receive that, then the Holy Spirit will continue to guide me. But I don't want to grieve the Holy Spirit, do I? Guidance from the Holy Spirit is what we need to be able to have the assurance that we'll be able to face the future, what we've read here in prophecy, to face that without being terrorized. Pastor Brooks shared in that video I watched last night, he said, as Christian people, we are to have self-control in every situation. That's the goal. That's a Christ-like spirit, isn't it? The devil wants to terrorize us so that we make terrible decisions and hopefully sin. That's his goal. He wants to destroy us. How do we get to a point in our walk where we uh, are calm in every situation? We have that character of Jesus. Now's the time to be preparing for that. And the Holy Spirit wants to prepare us for that. People that don't even know the three angels' messages are terrified today by what's going on in the world. It's not just in our country. It's all around the world. But there's no need for fear for it under divine direction and guidance, friends. The only way possible to face the future without terror is to be under the direction of the Holy Spirit. Let me share this with you. It's from This Day with God, page 91. She says, Stormy times are before us. The earth is corrupt and will increase in corruption. But you may have perfect trust in Christ. Notwithstanding the violence, the crime, the appropriation by men of money to which they have no right, there is a king who is king over the universe. We are his children, not the subjects of capricious fate. We have, yes, you have, as you read the words of encouragement spoken by Christ, the sacred promise that will renew the springs of hope. You may rejoice in a living Savior. He is our risen Lord. His promises are for all who will receive Him. You know, it's going to come to an end. It'll be midnight and dark for a while, but there there will be a happy ending for those who follow Jesus. Revelation 19, verses 1-2 says, And after these things, (laughs) after the Armageddon, after all this battle, after fleeing, I heard a great voice of much people in heaven saying, Alleluia, salvation and glory and honor and power unto the Lord our King. For true and righteous are His judgments. For He hath judged the great whore which did corrupt the earth with her fornication and hath avenged the blood of His servants at her hand. Beloved, we don't follow cleverly devised fables. There is a storm coming that will hit with a blinding force. Every person on this earth will be affected by this storm. And many will meet their doom because of it. But a faithful remnant will remain true to the word of God and stand for righteousness though the heavens fall. These will eagerly await the coming of their Savior and be forever reunited with all the redeemed of all ages. I'll leave you with this from Review and Herald, October 10th, 1907. How great will be the joy when the redeemed of the Lord shall all meet, gathered into the mansions prepared for them. Oh, what rejoicing for all who have been impartial, unselfish laborers together with God in carrying forward His work in the earth. What satisfaction will every reaper have when the clear, musical voice of Jesus shall be heard saying, Come, ye blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. Friends, let us be preparing for that day 
when the storm comes with blinding force so that we will hear those blessed words of our Savior when the storm ends. And God's the one who calms the storms, isn't He? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we again thank you so very, very much for your your holy word and for the promises that you've given to us who are really so unworthy. We thank you so much for Jesus and we look to him and we we pray for the Holy Spirit to be poured out without measure upon us so that we may be prepared for what's coming and help to prepare others for what's coming. We wish to be faithful servants and we fail very often. So we pray forgiveness for our sins. Help us to have righteous tendencies and not unrighteous ones. Please continue to be with us especially on this Holy Sabbath day. May we gain the blessing that you've promised because we need your blessings. And we thank you so very much for Jesus. And we give our hearts to him anew today. And we thank you for hearing this prayer, we pray in his blessed name.